0: study it together today. Well, uh, you're probably aware that that the past is famously full of bad predictions about the future. In 1929, just barely a week before the stock market crash that led to the Great Depression, uh, economist Irving Fisher told a group of investors that stock prices had, quote, reached what looks like a permanently high plateau in 1966. Uh, Time Magazine claimed that while remote shopping is entirely feasible, they said it will flop. The reason uh, they made that prediction was based on the fact, as they put it, that women like to get out of the house. They like to handle merchandise, and they like to change their minds. Well, examples could be multiplied many times over, but I think that's proof enough. Humanity is terrible at telling the future. And because we fear what we do not know, our worries about what might happen to us three days from now often leave us racked with anxiety. As we approach these chapters of what is now to us ancient history we need to remember that there was once actually a people who lived in the space between verses 49 and 51. There was a people, verse 49 tells us, who were camped by the Jordan in the plains of Moab. That was in the past. This is where they already were by the grace of God. And to that same people, the Lord began to speak of what was yet to come. Verse 51, he said, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Somebody has uh, described the future as a thick curtain that hangs in front of us all of our lives. And as we progress step by step, it recedes only one step at a time in front of us. Now that means that even though the Lord had told his people what they were to do in the land of Canaan, even though he let them know what kind of opposition they were likely to encounter, it meant that nobody knew. I mean, not for sure. Nobody knew experientially what awaited them on the other side. Nobody knew how long the the conquest was going to take. Nobody knew which soldiers were going to die in the process. Nobody knew which land would fall to each of the tribes. And so here was a people between verses 49 and 51 who faced an unknown future. They did not know what trials or joys or secret sufferings awaited them. And because they could not see the future, they needed to learn to trust in the God who can. There are two things. I want to help you see from this passage today. The first is that the Lord is the shepherd who has led us in the past. The Lord is the shepherd who has led us in the past. The Lord is the shepherd of his people. He is the God who leads us. He leads us wisely. He leads us perfectly. He leads his children with all the grace and compassion of a loving father. With all the skill of a surgeon's blade, he is the one, through every stage along our way with him, he has ordered our course so to bring us into confidence that he can be trusted for whatever is in store ahead of us. The Lord is the shepherd who has led us in the past. Now, Numbers chapter 33 begins by telling us that this is the list of places that Moses wrote down, campsite after campsite, from Egypt unto Moab. And as the list unfolds, it becomes clear that this is not a random collection of locations. Actually, Numbers chapter 9 has already told us what we ought to think about each of these places. Numbers chapter 9, verse 17, says that whenever the cloud of God's glory, whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Verse 18, at the command of the Lord the people set out, and at the command of the Lord they camped. And here the entire chapter, that first main section, is structured around those two verbs. They set out and they camped. Verse 17, they set out from Kibreth Hata Ava, they camped at Hazaroth. They set out from Hazaroth, they camped at Rithma. They set out from Rithmah, they camped at Rimon Peres, on it goes setting out and settling down and campsite after campsite for the whole 40 years. And if we want to know, well, how did they get to those places? Who chose the route that they took through the wilderness? The scripture says the Lord was their shepherd. At the command of the Lord they set out, at the command of the Lord they camped. So far, so good. But where exactly did he take them? Where was he leading his people as he led them through the wilderness? Well, for one, he led them through victories. Notice what it says at the beginning, verse 3. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. The Israelites went out of Egypt as winners, we would say. They who were, for a very long time, on the bottom of the ladder in Egypt went out on top because of what God had done for them. He had worked a victory for them. He sent his plagues and he sent his judgments on the false gods the Egyptians trusted. He sent his destroying angel to break the pride of Pharaoh and to shatter the chains of slavery. He proved that he was the God of deliverance. And when he led his people out, it was as though he was throwing a ticker tape parade to celebrate his own glory. The Lord led his people through victories. Now, because I don't mind pointing out the obvious, I'm going to tell you that that's what happened at the beginning of the story. There was more that came before it, that's right, there was Abraham, there was Adam, there were all the patriarchs, there were all the covenants, there was a story that that happened before the exodus and before they left in triumph, but that triumphant exodus was a defining moment. It was an identity maker. It was what established who these people were for generations to come. For generations, if you asked an Israelite, who are you? Well, she would say, I'm one of the people who the Lord brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace of slavery, and he brought us to himself. I'm one of those that the Lord delivered. That's where my story begins. Deliverance is what happened at the start it became the defining characteristic of who these people were. Now, we need to remember that that happened at the beginning. Because we are sometimes tempted to think that victory is what happened after they crossed into the Jordan. After all those long years of struggle, after fighting for, uh, for faith, we tend to imagine that victory was the result of their journey rather than the beginning of their journey. But that's not how the Lord counts the story of his people. Notice again, it says that Moses wrote down these places at the command of the Lord. And it's so the Lord was saying, Moses, when you write this down, start with what I did in Egypt. Make that the beginning point. Remind my people that this is where they have come from. Of course, there were other victories along the way. There were subsequent, there were were secondary victories that the Lord worked, victories like the one at pi ha where verse 8, almost nonchalantly, as if in passing, says, and they passed through the middle of the sea and into the wilderness. What a victory. There was the victory of God's provision of manna in the wilderness of sin. There was the provision of God's forgiveness at the foot of Mount Sinai. There was the victory of 123 years of faith and service for Aaron before he was gathered to his people at the top of Mount Hor. Yes, there were other victories along the way. In God's providence, there would be more victories to come. But the beginning of their walk with the God of their fathers was written in their history books in the victory of triumph and deliverance. If you are in Christ Jesus... That is your story as well. The story of each believer in Christ is a story that begins with a victory of deliverance. Colossians chapter 2 says that the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, God has set aside. He has set it aside by canceling that record of debt, by nailing it to the cross. It means that through Jesus Christ, God has buried our sin guilt in the tomb of his Son. It means that by the gift of his Holy Spirit, he has raised us to victory. He's made us, the scriptures say, more than conquerors through his glorious resurrection. And if you are in Christ, that happens at the beginning of your story rather than at the end. By the grace of God, there will be subsequent victories in the life of the believer. And if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, a few faithful decades, you can speak to the person who's younger than you, who's sitting next to you somewhere in the uh, the room today, and you can tell them about those victories. There are times you might say that the Lord showed up for grace and provision. He gave me exactly what I needed when I didn't have what it was that I needed. You might say to them that that the Lord showed up for mercy when your sin should have demanded otherwise. There will be subsequent victories in the life of the believer. But it is the victory of deliverance that becomes your identity. And the rest of your walk with the Lord is lived out as a response to that rather than an attempt to earn it. And for generations, Christians have used that, uh, the idea of crossing over the Jordan River to, to speak of a sort of metaphor of passing from this life into the next. You can read Pilgrim's Progress, and that is the culmination point. When Christian goes down into the Jordan and he's carried out from the other side, we've used that, and, and you need to know that when that day of crossing comes for you, the question of your eternal future will not be decided basis, uh, on the basis of some balancing act between your good deeds and your bad deeds. Rather, your eternal future will be based on God's history of deliverance for you. The question that defines the remaining eternity that you will have is the question of, has Jesus won the victory over your sin at Calvary? Has he delivered you from the guilt that once enslaved you? Has he become the victory that defines your identity? The Lord is the shepherd who has led his people in the past. He's led them through victories. He has also led them through sufferings. Verse 14 says, they set out from Allush and they camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. And at first we're tempted to think there must have been a mistake. Some miscalculation along the way. Maybe they made a left when they should have made a right and they landed unintentionally in this thirsty place without any water. But then we remember, no, at the command of the Lord they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. Specifically, at the command of the Lord, they camped, where it says there was no water for the people to drink. Now, if that sounds like not a big deal to you, that is simply proof that you have never been really, terribly, life-threateningly thirsty. In 1979, an Australian man named Andreas Michavich was arrested in a small town in Canberra. A minor thing, he was a part of an automobile accident, but he was arrested and he was placed in a basement holding cell in the local police station, where the police officers later admitted that they simply forgot him. They remembered him, eventually. Eighteen days later, they remembered him. By then, he had lost nearly 50 pounds. The doctors suggested that he was able to survive without water because the basement he was in was so unpleasantly dank that he was able to lick drops of condensation off the cement walls. That is not just an illustration of what it's like to be really thirsty. That's also an example of what it feels like to be suffering. Because when you're suffering, you are tempted to think that you have been Forgotten. Like a man left to languish without resources or fellowship, without hope of relief, suffering feels like a shadow that hangs over you. It feels like a cloud that you can't find your way out of. It seems like a fog through which no one else can reach you where you are. And so on top of all of the physical or the emotional pain of whatever it is that you're going through, the experience of suffering itself also leaves you exhausted and frustrated and wondering how it could be possible to be as alone as it feels like you somehow have become. And that means that when we read the Bible and we read that God's people settled down in this thirsty place of suffering, we have a few options to interpret that. The first option is to conclude that the God who was leading them was at least temporarily forgetful. That he had other things on his mind, that he was busy with other stuff, that it was simply a momentary lapse, and that his, his people, well, he could have stopped the suffering if only he had remembered. That's one option. The other option is to conclude that the very same God who has already proved his power and his compassion by delivering his people in the first place still had a good purpose in mind, even through the suffering that he's just led them into. Of course, it's easy to say that if you've never been desperately thirsty. And when people have not suffered what you have suffered, it is easy to think that any spiritual encouragement they might give you is just a platitude, just easy answers to problems that they are not dealing with. But actually the Bible doesn't give us any easy answers to our suffering. I think that's what we think we want sometimes. We want a clean explanation. We want to know the hidden purposes behind God's sovereignty. We want an A to B equation for the logic behind our afflictions. And when we're suffering, we think it would all be better if somebody could just answer that question of why. The Bible doesn't answer why. Not always. Certainly not with the specificity that we have in mind. When we are suffering, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but the Bible does tell us that in our suffering, the Lord is with us. That He hasn't forgotten us. That He's so committed to being with us in our suffering that He came down and took that suffering upon Himself. That He took our pain and our anguish upon Himself to prove His love for the people that He's leading. And because that is true, the Bible can be bold enough to give us the hard answers we really need for suffering, and not just the easy ones that we think we want. And so the Bible's answer is that even our suffering comes from Him. Our afflictions are not a momentary lapse on God's part. It's not a little bit of amnesia. Instead, the Bible tells us that everything our lives encompass, both the victories and the defeats, we might say, come from the same gracious hand of the God who has delivered us through Jesus Christ. We don't have an option. If the Lord led them to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water, He's also led them here, where there was nothing to drink. And yet the Bible tells us that God is so wise and so powerful that he is able to work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't always tell us what particular purpose he has in mind. He doesn't always tell us what virtues he's working into our lives, whether it's steadfastness or faith, whether it's humility, whether it's perseverance. He it doesn't tell us what he's doing all the time, but he does reassure us That whatever we are suffering has come from him and that he has not forgotten us. I sat down this week and I started to make a list, a physical list of the difficult things that the people in this congregation are going through. It was a very long list. It was a very long list and I didn't even get to all of them. I'm not going to repeat them here and embarrass you because you already know what you're dealing with, but I will tell you that basically everybody in this room was on my list. And that's just the suffering that I know about. Suffering through ministry to aging parents. Or caring for your kids. Suffering through a diagnosis. Or a treatment. Or chronic disease. Suffering through the emotional pain of a life that has led in a direction that you couldn't have predicted or perhaps suffering by realizing that your life turned out exactly how you wanted, but now, toward the end, you realize you wanted the wrong things all along, and it's too late to go back and do it over. There's a lot more, and if you're the one who's going through it, you know the details of your affliction better than I do. And although I have no easy answers for you and your suffering, I can tell you this, the Lord has not forgotten you. He has not left you alone inside the impenetrable fog of your afflictions. He has not turned you over to chance and misfortune. How do you know that? You know that because that suffering came from him. The same loving hand that crushed his son brought it to you. And Though you don't know particularly what he's doing, he's doing good with it. The Lord is with you. If you are in Christ, he is for you. He will not abandon the work of his hands. So the Lord shepherds his people. He leads them through victories. He leads them through suffering. He also leads them through the obscurity that nobody remembers. Take a look in verse 19. It says they set out from Rithma and they camped at Rimon Perez. They set out from Rimon Perez, and they camped at Libna. They set out from Libna and they camped at Rissa. They set out from Risna. You could keep going, actually. The next several verses, the main takeaway is the same. Here is a list of places that we know next to absolutely nothing about. There are 42 campsites in this chapter if you count Ramses and Moab. Forty-two. And among them, there are the Sinai's, right? There, there are the Kadesh's. There are the ones that we know about. There are the consequential places where things happen, and we have it written down, and we can go and be encouraged. But then there are also the quiet places that are only show up here and maybe a few other places. And then there are places like the ones in verses 19 to 22, the ones that show up only here. Nowhere else in all the Scripture. There are 17 of them in this chapter. That show up nowhere else. They show up without latitude or longitude. They show up without detail or drama. They show up without any indication of the real human struggle that happened in those places 3,500 years ago. We have no idea where they are, and yet, in God's eternal wisdom, they are places that were written down. And they were written down so that we could remember that God leads his people even when nobody else knows where God is leading his people. That's what most of our life looks like, actually. We can sit here and we can talk about victories and we can talk about valleys of suffering, but from time to time, those peaks show up on our horizon, but far and away, the landscape of our lives turns out to be mostly plains and rolling hills. And after a while, at all sorts of starts to blend together. right? I remember as a kid traveling with my family to family vacations, family visits in North Carolina. And my family in North Carolina, they were not from the mountains over there, the Smoky Mountains uh, in the west. They were not from the beach over there in the east. They were from the sand flats right in the middle. And every time we were there, if we would go around from town to town, I was completely unmoored. There were no landmarks that I could recognize, at least. It was a bunch of straight, flat roads, and there were soybeans over here, and there was cotton over there, and I could be 15 minutes away from my grandparents' house. I might as well have been in Kentucky. It all looked the same to me. And that's what the majority of our Christian lives looks like. It looks like church on Sunday and work the rest of the week and getting your kids where they need to be and maybe on Saturday, if you can, getting a day to to reset and try again before it happens all over again. Or maybe it looks like dinner and dishes and laundry so that you can cook another dinner and do more dishes and do more laundry so you can pick up after somebody who's just made a mess that they're going to make all over again. And much of our lives feels like there's no landmark. We're just moving along. Rod Dreher puts it this way. He says, everydayness is my problem. Oh, it's easy to think about what you would do in wartime. It's easy to think about what to do if a hurricane blows through or if you spent a month in Paris, if your guy wins the election, if you won the lottery and, and bought that thing you really wanted. It's a lot more difficult, he says, to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. Everydayness, he says. That's our problem. But Libna and Rissa are a reminder that the Lord is still with his people, even in their everydayness. He is the Lord who knows where he's leading them, even when nobody else knows where they are. We don't know the details of what happened in Libna, Or in Rissa, but we know that in places like that, the Lord was carrying on the mission he had begun with his people. In places like Libna and Rissa, an older generation of Israelites died and passed into judgment. Libna and Rissa became the precipice of eternity for a whole generation. In places like Libna and Rissa, a new generation of Israelites was born and and nursed upon the promises of God through His covenants. There, people confronted a daily frustration and temptation of sinners living in close proximity with one another. In places like Libna and Rissa, they prayed and they worshipped and they loved and they sacrificed. In other words, places like that, Livna and Rissa, God's people encountered the slow simmer of faithfulness where the Lord had led them. And in those obscure places, they wrestled with the question of whether the God of the Bible can be trusted. Not, not just with the big stuff, you understand, but with the everydayness. And it's the drama that plays out in your days too. The question of whether the God who has led you all this way can still be trusted when you wake up tomorrow. And it brings us all the way down to verse 51. And the second thing I want you to see in this passage, and that is that the God of your past can be trusted with your future. The God of your past can be trusted with your future. So here are these people spread out like locusts all over the plains of Moab. Their promised land is just a few hundred yards across a river. And into that pregnant moment, the Lord speaks a word of command. He begins to give them laws about what to do in the future. Actually, I think these commands are more like a challenge. He's calling this people, when they enter into the land, to enter as people who trust their futures to Him rather than to themselves. Notice what the Lord tells them. He tells them in the last section of this chapter to avoid two false promises as they come into the land of Canaan. The first false promise is the snare of pluralism. Verse 51. When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and you shall destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. I know, right? I know this is one of those really harsh Old Testament passages that's all about eradicating other peoples in the land of promise. I get that. But the focus isn't really on the other peoples so much as it's on those people's religion, the gods that they worshipped. It's on their stones, it's on their images, it's on their places of worship. It's a warning not to allow the smallest shred of false worship to creep into God's covenant community. Not to tolerate mixing even a little bit of paganism with a little bit of faithfulness. Now, why in the world would an Israelite want to do that, of all things? Well, to get what they want, of course. Pluralism was the order of the day in most ancient pagan societies. Here's the way it worked. Each local people had their own local deity, but each local people also believed that there were probably other non-local deities. And those other non-local deities, well, they could be pretty helpful if you knew what they wanted and you could figure out how to get it to them. And so you'd, you'd gather whatever you could. If that people over there had a god of fertility and you needed fertility, well, you'd take a little bit of that. Worship that god a little bit. If that people over there had a god of warfare and you needed to fight a battle, you'd you'd take a little bit of that. You'd put it all together. You'd make up your own thing. You'd keep your options open. Because you're the one steering your future, and you can figure out what it is you need and which deity can be most helpful. Here's how G.K. Beale put it. He said the worship of idols often involved self-worship. The worship of idols often involved self-worship, since people would worship various gods in the ancient world to ensure their own physical, economic, and spiritual welfare. In this respect, he says magic was often used to manipulate the various supernatural powers in order to ensure the worshippers' own best interest. The people are going over into the land of Canaan, and the Lord is telling them, do not get involved with that kind of stuff. Don't think that you can figure out what is best for you and you can get it from somebody else's God if you just add a little bit of this mixture to that mixture. Do not allow pluralism to steal away their trust from the God who has led them faithfully all this way. That's the first thing. Stay away from the snare of pluralism, he tells them. The second false promise is what we might call uh, the snare of politics. Politics. Verse 53, the Lord said, You shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Then verse 54 goes on says, You shall inherit the land by lot according to your tribes. Large tribe, large inheritance, small tribe, small inheritance, but wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. Now, here's something that seems entirely foreign to us. If, if our government announced uh, that tomorrow the Commonwealth of Massachusetts would be taken from its current owners and handed over to new ones, how do you think we would settle the land grab? What would we do with the allotments and the divisions of the land? Well, maybe we'd do it the way they settled the Wild West, right? First person to get there gets a couple dozen acres and maybe a mule to farm it. Maybe we'd think up some much more sensitive, much more progressive way of dealing with it to make sure that nobody got left out and nobody's feelings were hurt. Most likely, I can tell you that every constituent would be lobbying their representatives. They would be talking about all of their perceived needs and injustices because that's the way we fix most things. You get the right person in power, and you get that person to work the system for you. And if in the end you don't get what you wanted, you get a new person in power. Not that that's all bad. Right? There's a place for politics. Later in chapter 34, actually, the Lord is going to designate his chosen representatives to oversee the whole distribution of the land. But even with those divinely appointed men in place, the Lord says the whole thing shall be decided by lot. That is, most likely, different colored stones that were thrown to decide yes or no, up or down, left or right. Something that's not too far off from our modern idea of the roll of the dice. If that sounds too haphazard for you, remember that Israel knew what we sometimes forget. They knew Proverbs 16, verse 33. That the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It means that even the lot was an expression of the sovereignty of the God who had shepherded them to where they are. And God was simply telling them, rather than trying to work the system, you need to trust in my process. Here's what I'm giving you. Here's what I'm calling you to. You need to commit to that, not to the power of your politics. Now, what's the point of it all? The point is that this list of campsites is not a random string of unrelated locations. Standing on the border of the future in the land, the Lord commanded Moses to write down all the places that he'd led his people. He was calling his people to remember his faithfulness. And he was doing that because he knew that in the future, they would be tempted to trust in anything other than the God who sovereignly directed every stage of their journey. And we are still tempted by the same things. We still struggle with our sufferings. We still struggle with our everydayness. We face anxiety about the future that we can't possibly know. And into that empty space of uncertainty, we're tempted to insert our own little efforts, our own little expertise, Well, if I can do this, if I can twist that, if I can align these things, maybe it will turn out the way that I need it to. We're tempted to find a way to trust ourselves. The Lord is simply calling us to have confidence in Him. It's true that we can't possibly know what tomorrow holds for any of us. But if we know the God who stepped into our history to redeem us through Jesus, then we can know that he will never abandon us. Whatever the future is that comes to find us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is the shepherd who has led us in the past. And the God of your past can be trusted for your future. Let's pray together. Gracious God and King, we pray that you would give us faith to walk with you. Thank you that through Christ Jesus, you have made a people your own. Thank you that by your grace and the gift of your Holy Spirit, we are called among that number. We pray for any who are not, who have not yet been drawn to faith in you, that you would move in their hearts and give them the victory of deliverance. Call them to know you and trust in you and set them on the path of walking faithfully behind you. Father, for all those who know you and are suffering, remind them not only of that initial victory, but of your presence. Keep us from trusting in the things of this world. Keep us, O Lord, from setting up our hopes in the things that we can achieve. But instead, help us to know that you are the God who leads us and directs us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. come now to a table that proclaims to us the loving kindness of God our Savior. This is the table of God's shepherding care where he reminds us that he's the one who leads us not only through our lives and and life journey and all that stuff, he leads us to himself. That's the destination. Wherever else we're going as God's people, whatever else we suffer, whatever else we encounter, the destination is that the Lord is leading us to himself and this is a foretaste of that. The Bible tells us that the end result of the lives of believers is a wedding supper of the Lamb. A marriage feast where we will have fellowship and communion with the God who made us and redeemed us to himself. And this is a foretaste of that. This is a reminder of what Christ has done in the past to draw us to himself. It is a foretaste, of looking forward to what he will do in the future. And here we stand in the middle And this table is to encourage us to have confidence in him. The promises of this table are for all those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is forgiveness of sins, there is life eternal, there is fellowship with the Lord in his kingdom. If you have believed in him and and professed that he is your God, these promises are yours. Come and eat and drink by faith. If you've not yet done that. If you've not publicly professed that the Lord is your Savior, we ask you to allow the elements to pass. But consider whether the Lord might also be calling you to faith in himself and fellowship with himself through this table today. We read in Mark's Gospel that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God and King, we thank you for this table set before us. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us so to trust in you and believe in your promises, uh, that you would keep us walking faithfully with you. Thank you for the gift of your Son, the one whom you did not withhold but gave up for us. Help us by faith to eat and drink and believe in his sacrifice for us, and so have life in your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples, and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat, and do this in remembrance of me. Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way Christ took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant given for many for the remission of sins take and drink all of you reminder that there is wine on the outside juice in the middle Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that the Son whom you gave to drink to the dregs, the cup of your wrath, has given us the cup of fellowship in his blood. We thank you that you are the one who's drawn us to yourself and will keep us walking by your Holy Spirit and faithfulness until we see all of your promises fulfilled in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a a little longer announcement for the second Sunday today. Uh, You folks are aware, you're all regulars here, uh, that on the second Sunday of the month, we take a second offering. That goes to our deacon's offering Uh, It is to help those who are in our church or in our community who might be in any need. The conversation I had with the deacons this week is that there are multiple ways to help the deacons fund. One is by doing what we are about to do right now, taking that offering, giving faithfully to those who might be in need. The second is letting deacons know if you are aware of a need in our congregation or in our community. The deacons are very discreet. Uh, very often, those who find themselves in need don't want to come and ask, but through our Christian fellowship and love with one another, we sometimes find out about things that are going on in one another's lives. And if you're aware of a physical need, something that the deacons can help with, they want to invite you to let them know. Uh, they, they're not going to blab about it. They're not going to tell the whole congregation. They try to maintain everybody's uh, confidence uh, in, in very strict measures. Uh, but an encouragement to you Not just that that we want to keep putting more money in that account, although that's a good and faithful thing to do, but that account is there for a reason. And if you're aware of needs in our church or in our community, please let a deacon know, uh, and they will be sure to follow up with it. it. Deacons, please come and collect that offer. Hymn of response today, number 598 Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Won't you stand as we sing together? Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, you redeemed of the Lord, hear God's good word for you, his benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, to the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. where I tell you that my original plan had been uh, to preach and to to read through and preach both chapters today, but when I heard how many announcements there were going to be after the service, I figured we've got to cut somewhere. That's a joke, it's not true. Uh, But there are a lot of announcements, many of them which are not in our bulletin. So first, read your bulletin. We've got a men's breakfast coming up, we've got a ladies' brunch coming up, we have sign-up sheets that are woefully uh, unbalanced out in the hall.